Hi there, and welcome to Power Play. I'm Vashi Capellos, coming to you from the West Block on Parliament Hill this evening. We have a lot in store for you on tonight's program, including that health care funding proposal from the Prime Minister to Premiers. It looks like some Premiers are closer than ever to signing on the dotted line. We're going to have the latest for you on that. We're also going to talk about the Chinese spy balloon and some new information from the Pentagon about what exactly that balloon is capable of. The former director of CSIS, Ward Elcock, will be with me in a few minutes to unpack some of that new information. And we're also going to head over to Laval for a, a new report, a live report rather, on new information in the tragic events that happened yesterday morning when a 51-year-old man drove a city bus into a daycare killing two children. He now faces two counts of first-degree murder, and we have learned that the Prime Minister will attend a vigil this evening, so we'll head live, as I said, to Laval to get a report on that. First, though, I want to talk about another tragedy that is unfolding this week outside of our borders. This one in Turkey and Syria, where a magnitude 7.5 earthquake struck on Monday and continues to sow enormous amounts of destruction. In fact, the death toll, the number of people who have died because of this earthquake now exceeds 20,000 people. It is the deadliest earthquake in more than a decade. This country, Canada, has pledged a couple different forms of aid, $10 million first and then another $10 million in matching funds to whatever the Red Cross is able to raise between February 6th and 22. This week, the federal government also sent out an assessment team to figure out what more Canada can contribute. And it's on that point that I bring my next guest in, my first guest in, I should say, Minister Harjit Sajjan. He's the Minister for International Development. Minister, good to have you with us. Thank nice you very much here. for making the time. I appreciate it. Uh, that that team, that assessment team, did it leave last night or yesterday? No, I, or yesterday, I, um, or I don't know the exact time when, when it actually left, but I'll tell you what they, what they do. Are um, they there? Sorry? Um, I don't have the exact details. Normally, so the team is actually monitored by... Uh, um, um, through uh, some of our global affairs team, plus also our, our military folks on, on the ground. But one thing I can, I'm waiting for the report to figure out what the next steps are. We want, when any time a disaster strikes like this, we want to respond very quickly. In fact, I'd love to be able to explain to Canadians how it happens. One is we actually put funding into organizations like the UN and others so they can respond immediately. So that takes that's an automatic uh, system. Then what we do is put initial funding into making sure that the emergency resources can be provided. And that's what the initial $10 million of, of support was. Then the matching fund, because Red Cross was able to move very quickly. Uh, and now after the needs assessment is done, we're going to determine exactly what more we'll be providing in terms of resources and also for funding. And let's not, let's not forget our uh, warehouses, that we have one in Mississauga and Dubai, and we've already started uh, sending supplies from there. So, so let me ask you a little bit, um, for a little bit more specifics on how exactly that assessment is conducted and how long it will take to get that information back to your government so you can make a decision about what else Canada is prepared to do. What are they doing over there? How, how long does it take? Uh, it just takes days. So it depends on um, uh, the gravity of the, of the situation, how far they need to go. So for example, uh, what they're assessing is what type of support is going, going to be needed, who's actually doing effective work that actually needs the funding, Plus, the military does their own uh, work, and Minister Nand will have more on this. But when I used to be uh, 
uh, M&D and sending the teams, they'll conduct an assessment uh, if the DART team is also needed. Where they, can they go? How uh, do they have the logistics capability? So once that assessment is done, uh, we'll be able to make the appropriate decision. So just to be clear, who, who is over there? Is it is it the military and global so affairs? Global like everybody conducting yeah, so that assessment? Yeah, so it's usually a combined team that uh, goes from global affairs and, and from the military so they can have a, a thorough assessment of what is actually needed. So do you expect to have a decision or to be able to make a decision on what the next steps for Canada are by next week? So uh, I would say uh, even possibly sooner. Okay. So even as the assessment is going on, we know that the devastation is, is considerable. So we're already pre- preparing uh, what are the things that we could be providing in terms of uh, uh, additional funding. We're looking at other organizations who can actually do more, for example, uh, like the uh, Humanitarian Coalition made up of Canadian NGOs. So in anticipation, we're already preparing. Once the assessment is done, we'll have more information, but the, the assessment can come in days, and our decision to provide more support for can also come in days and uh, definitely uh, less than a week. So I do understand that, th- that there is a process that, that you have endeavored on with this assessment team, but I'm sure you're familiar also with the criticism that's out there right now, that Canada is waiting too long, that if you are to send search and rescue efforts, that it's too late, right? Because it, the earthquake happened on Monday. What's your response to that? No, first of all, the, the uh, it's... Actually, we respond actually very quickly. And you have to understand is that when, when any disaster happens, like, for example, in the pack and, and during the floods in Pakistan, automatically there's a system that already kicks in. The funding goes uh, into place. When it comes to rescue teams, that's a very different way of responding. So, for example, in Europe, there are a lot of teams that are cur- um, currently there that can respond. Just geographically, they can respond a lot faster. Turkey also have an integral capability. Then these, those are the type of assessments that are done. Who is the best who's best able to conduct those type of assessment because an earthquake, uh, the rescue actually, first rescue actually happens to the people that are there. Then the rescue team uh, comes in. But we're all automatically already planning who's got the best resources to respond. If we need more uh, support, we will take a, take a look at that and, and provide support. The, the only, and I sort of get that, right? Proximity, uh, proximity of resources. The, the challenge I would have for you on that is the, the sort of scale of the devastation, yes. right? Even like there are two dozen countries that have already sent search and rescue crews, right? Clearly, they are, uh, you know, no match for the scale of the devastation there. How can you make the argument that our resources wouldn't be needed? No, so it's mem- yet, it's, even s- yet. But it's not that it's, the, when it comes to search and rescue, right? Sadly, there's always always a timeline that, that needs to be assessed. So we had what, no resources to offer. No, so we have. So we, for example, we have um, uh, we have search and rescue. Uh, we do have heavy urban search and rescue teams, right? Uh, in in Canada, but one of the things uh, they, we also need to work on is uh, the international certification for them to be able to deploy in these. Uh, so they're uh, not type certified of, to do uh, that. Setting. Uh, from what I gather, that no, not right now. However, this okay. is something that would also we were already working towards. Something that uh, uh, my department and I were working on is to how can we help actually train other countries on capacity building for these type of things. And this is one of the things we were considering. And what this will allow us to do is take a look at what those next next steps could be. And th- well, how we, what we're trying to do also, when you look at the globe and how to respond, it's not just every country providing support. What we need to do is look at how do we uh, share those responsibilities right. across the globe. Like, for example, I was talking uh, just yesterday with my Japanese counterpart uh, when it comes to disaster response in, in the Pacific. So these questions are always ongoing. But yes, the devastation and the scale is significant. That's why we want to make a decision on who has the right resources and to get there at the right and, time. And I, and I do understand, again, that there might be uh, certain spots that Canada can, can best address. But I'm looking at you know reaction from uh, people who, the president of the Federation of Canadian Turkish Associations, who said it's very sad the Canadian government has not yet committed to sending any search and rescue teams abroad, or the executive director of the Syrian Canadian Foundation, who said she was disappointed 
with your government's response so far. The perception among the communities associated with those affected is that your government has been slow to act. No, and you know when I, when, I, when you see devastation like this, it's understandable. Um, everybody wants to be able to respond very quickly. But when it comes to this world, I used to be on the heavy urban rescue team myself, trained on it for five years when I was on the Vancouver police, where I, I, we look at how to respond, right? These are type of decisions that have to be made um, by, uh, uh, by the right people. And I can assure you, the system that we have in the place does actually allow us to respond very quickly. Sometimes it's not about just sending people. It's about making sure that when the people arrive there, can they actually get to the right, the right place? All that has to be done. Because just imagine, we can actually just deploy the team, right? But if they're sitting at an airport and not knowing where to go, where the logistics and where they can help, all that needs to be uh, sorted out. I get that, out, but right? two dozen other countries were able to do it. Are you saying that the reason we didn't send a search and rescue crew or any of them is because they're not internationally certified? And will that be rectified no, going it's, forward? It's even more than that, right? It's about when, for example, working in, in, in a disaster zone, there, sometimes there's also experience involved. So for example, we... Uh, uh, we do, for example, respond very quickly, much faster into the Caribbean because we already have a system in place. We actually sent teams early on before the hurricane season and we're able to respond uh, very differently. So those are those things. So I don't know for any terms of uh, which rescue team maybe already had certain type of agreements in place, MOUs, just like we in Canada have agreements with other uh, country, uh, countries on how they would respond I to our have, disasters. Um, I apologize. I just have 30 seconds left and yeah. I want to make sure Canadians are aware of if, in fact, you know, the assessment team comes back and says, we can help. Can you provide an example you know, of what Canada would do? If it's not going to be search and rescue teams, what, what would it be? So uh, uh, one of the things is DART. DART um, right. That's a decision that Minister Nan can make, and they're always ready to deploy, ready to uh, move very quickly. Why hasn't the decision been made already? So that, that's what the team is there for. So they have to wait sure. for the assessment? You, you have to, because if you don't, sending a team without knowing exactly where to go, what needs okay. to be done. That system has to be there. Otherwise, what happens in a disaster is if resources arrive, right, you get overwhelmed with the logistics system. And this has happened before, where warehouses get uh, filled up with too many resources, okay. but those resources are actually don't actually end up helping the people. So when it comes to this, it, 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 it moves very quickly, but we have to make very quick decisions to making sure we have the right resources at the right place. Okay, Minister, I'll leave it there. I'm out of time. Thank you very okay. much for your time. I appreciate it. Harjit Sajjan is the Minister of international development. I want to turn to a story uh, that I know is upsetting for so many Canadians uh, that occurred yesterday in Laval, Quebec, where two young children were killed when a bus, a city bus, was driven into a daycare. My colleague Vanessa Lee is in Laval live now. Uh, Vanessa, what is the latest on this situation? Well, Vashi, the Prime Minister will be attending a vigil here at St. Rose de Lima Church, along with Laval Mayor Stéphane Boyer and members of the community. You can see people now, they've been here all day uh, laying flowers and teddy bears, and they've also been at the scene of the daycare, which is about two kilometers away from the church. Really, people just coming together. We've seen so many people just, just stand and pause in front of the daycare to pay their respects to the two little kids who died just four years old. One of them was to turn five next week. Quebec Premier François Legault also visited the scene today and he spoke about how difficult this is. He himself is a father of, of two grown children, but he says that this tragedy is magnified by the fact that it's children, that, that there are everything. And so what he wanted to do was just reiterate the fact that supports are in place for anyone affected, anyone from the parents, from the educators, and really the community at large. He was talking about how 
what people heard, the things that people heard and saw yesterday are going to be forever seared in their minds. And so he wanted everyone to know that supports are in place as this community comes together to cope with this heartbreak, Vashi. So unimaginable. Thanks a lot, Vanessa. CTV's Vanessa Lee in Laval, Quebec. As Vanessa mentioned, the prime minister is expected to attend a vigil in Laval this evening at around 6.30. CTV News Channel will, of course, uh, carry that for you. I'm going to take a quick commercial break here on Power Play this evening. On the other end of that break, we're going to talk to former CSIS director, uh, Ward Elcock, Canada's spy agency, the former head of that spy agency, about exactly what you're looking at right now that spy balloon from China and what it means for the relationship between China and Canada. Stay right there. We're back with a lot more. Either this is no big deal in the military's eyes, and I don't think you're going to say that, um, or there's not a consistent plan on how to deal with them. It defies belief that there was not a single opportunity to safely shoot down this spy balloon prior to the coast of South Carolina. I would tell you, one of the things I think that's very different from our country, than, and you can look at historical examples, is we think before we shoot. And... That is just some of what transpired on Capitol Hill today with senators very sharply focused on the U.S. government's and military's response to that Chinese spy balloon, which, of course, was shot down over the Carolinas after the weekend once it passed into the U.S. And don't forget, before that, it passed through parts of Canada. Let's talk a little bit more about what the implications are for the the wider implications really are for the relationship between Canada and China following some of the new information from the Pentagon on the balloon with my next guest, former CSIS director Ward Elcock. Hi, Mr. Elcock. Good to have you with us this evening. It's always a pleasure. I appreciate it. I I wanted to start off on the new information from the Pentagon uh, that says basically the balloon had the tools that had tools on board that could collect communications signals so that it was uh, capable of more than, of course, the Chinese uh, purported when it when it called it a weather balloon, but that it actually could uh, collect communications from the ground. Your, Your reaction to that? Well, they would be able to see that from the ground. Uh, they would be able to take pictures of it. And they would know to have some idea of what the capacity is, although they probably want to do some forensic analysis of, of what they find, uh, of le- what's left of the, of the package that was attached to the balloon, uh, to actually know precisely what it was looking at or have a better idea. But, yeah, it appears to be that it did have a, an intelligence capacity, although the reality is, in most cases, I suspect uh, the, everybody knew the balloon was coming, so probably most things that the balloon might have been looking for would have been shut down in any case. The Pentagon also said, just to, to that point, that they, they thought it was one of a fleet of 40, I think, um, across five different continents. What does that tell you? It, it certainly, I mean, it leaves me with the impression that they knew a lot about it before it even left China. It, it certainly does. And, and if, if there were 40 of them, then they clearly are... Uh, are trying to collect something. What it is is hard to tell, uh, although if it's 40, it sounds like they're trying to collect some sort of baseline intelligence uh, f- for exactly what purpose, though you can't really tell until you can see the package more clearly. In, 
I was also, I mean, I, I keep getting these questions from people who, who watch the segments we do on this. Like, we already know China monitors us through a, a variety of different means. Why would they be going this route? Why a balloon? That's the hard part to know. Um, the reality is I have a pretty good idea of what the U.S. capacity is in terms of its ability to use satellite coverage. Um, I don't know precisely what the Chinese capacity is, but I don't imagine that it's very far behind. Uh, it's probably not bad at all. So why they would turn to balloons is not entirely clear. It's not particularly steerable. It would be hard to, hard to control. Uh, so precisely what they were aiming for is hard to know. But if it's a, a 40 balloon program or more potentially, then that suggests that they are looking for something. Uh, do you view it in the wider context, Mr. Elcock, as a mistake by China, given the, the political fallout? And by that, I mean, for example, that the secretary of state in the U.S. was about to visit Beijing. Uh, and canceled his visit or, or quote-unquote, delayed it. Uh, the Chinese ambassador here in Canada was summoned. Uh, it seems like every time there's a few steps forward, there's 15 steps backwards. Do you view this as an error on China's part? It's certainly a surprise in the sense that it's really, really clumsy, uh, which, which is sort of unexpected, uh, but it is clumsy. Uh, if it, turns, it may turn out to be a serious mistake, but it certainly was a very clumsy one. And finally, before I let you go, Mr. Elcock, uh, in the Canadian context more specifically, we focus so much on U.S. intelligence, the Pentagon, what they're saying. Uh, this balloon came through Canada uh, and traveled over some parts of this country. Uh, should we be hearing more from our own authorities on their own intelligence, or is this mostly, would their intelligence mostly be based on whatever the U.S. has gathered? I think the U.S. is going to have a greater capacity to collect intelligence. They obviously have some of, of the parts of the balloon, or, or at least a portion of them. Uh, there are some signs that, that Canada was involved. There, there were some reports that, uh, that a Polaris aircraft and a, and a fuel tanker were in the area around the balloon as it transited through Canadian territory, which suggests that, that Canadian, the Canadian military were involved in providing some level of surveillance as the balloon came through. Okay, Mr. Elcock, I'm going to leave it there. Thanks very much for your insights this evening. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. Ward Elcock is the former director of CSIS, Canada's spy agency. We have a lot more to come from the West Block on Power Play this evening. We're going to talk about some premiers getting very close to inking a deal with the federal government on health with the front bench, our former our panel, rather, of former premiers, Christy Clark, Kathleen Wynne, and Daryl Dexter, will be here. And up next, we're going to dig into LNG and some comments from Alberta's premier, Danielle Smith. She says she got some positive signs from the prime minister on moving some of those projects forward. We're going to talk about that after a quick break. Stay right there. More to come tonight on Power Play from the West Block. I uh, did write a letter to the Prime Minister a couple of weeks ago um, expressing concern about some of the major initiatives that have been announced without much consultation with Alberta that stand to have a huge impact on our province. Uh, the just transition legislation that gives the, imp the impression that the energy sector is going to be phased out, it's not going to be phased out. We're transforming away from uh, high intensity emissions to lower emissions, and I think we have some shared priorities on that, on 
LNG export to reduce emissions using the green transfer mechanism to get um, credit here. That would also help British Columbia. Alberta's Premier Danielle Smith there commenting during her meeting with the Prime Minister just this week uh, that up for discussion was LNG and natural gas and expanding the production and export of that. She said just a few minutes ago, actually speaking to reporters, that she received some positive signs from the Prime Minister on that. The discussion around LNG and the potential for exporting more of it has changed, certainly due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and Europe's uh, now realized dependence on Russia for that gas and backing away from it. I want to bring in my next guest to talk a little bit about the Canadian context here. Uh, Bjorn Inga Tunnison is the uh, the board, uh, Questair's rather, Questair Energy's board of directors chair. He's with me live here in Ottawa. Mr. Tennyson, pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much for making the time. Yes, thank you for having me here. I know your company holds the rights to um, a large deposit of natural gas in Quebec specifically. And I wanted to ask you, though the wider context, the discussion around LNG certainly has changed during this war, Quebec has taken a different path. They've, they've actually banned new oil and gas projects. Do you have any optimism that will change? I think when you see uh, with the Russian invasion in Ukraine, the energy security situation in Europe in particular has changed a lot. And the equation now to how to handle that situation in Europe has increased demand. And I think there is a business case for Canada and Quebec to supply that energy to Europe. So they can assist them of coming over this uh, energy crisis they experience now in Europe. Because that will last for long and they, they need external supplies. And LNG from uh, Quebec is a very good solution. So, so uh, again, though, I'll, I'll put to you, I understand your perspective and certainly I've heard it from others. I, in fact, I interviewed uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz who said if Canada could provide the LNG, he would take it. And certainly... Uh, Quebec is, is one kind of portal to Europe, and a simpler one than, than from out west. You, you talk about a business case. The Prime Minister has continually highlighted that, that there needs to be a business case and that he has yet to see one. How do you make that business case when Quebec has essentially outlawed the development of gas projects? Well, we do understand from, the, from several, you know, authorities in Quebec that there may be a room to look at this with new eyes because it is another situation than when the, this law was uh, put in place. So we think there is an opening and this is a very large gas discovery that has the potential to supply with large volumes to Europe. So there is a business case if, if the Quebec government would allow this to go f forward. And when you say you've seen some signs that their eyes may be, kind of be, be uh, open to something different than what they've done before, what, what are those signs? They haven't been too public-facing about them. Well, we know there have been the Minister of Finance without uh, explaining that, okay, we understand that there is, uh, the, you know, the, the scene out there on energy is different now than it was. So there are these signs, uh, and we've had conversations with the... Uh, uh, with the Quebec government just to, to explain what the project is about. 
And uh, of course, you know, and we are there to assist on this uh, project to move it forward so it could actually happen. So I think there are you know, not straightforward uh, uh, statements that they would like to see it, but that it, it is a possibility they could look upon it with new eyes. The other thing the federal government has cited as an impediment to increasing or being able to address the crisis in Europe specifically or, or what's happened with Russia and Ukraine is timelines, right? That even if they gave the go-ahead, this isn't something that would turn around overnight and have the ability to address the sort of immediacy of the crisis. What would you say to that? No, well, <clears throat> of course, there is a timeline to develop uh, energy projects, but this would, one would be one of the quicker ones to solve or supply uh, Europe. And we say there is already a uh, existing federal export permit for LNG in a small scale from uh, Bekancourt Court uh, up the St. Lawrence River. And, uh, you know, if we get all the decisions and all stars are aligned, we could have LNG exported to uh, Europe within two years after that final investment decision. So, you know, of course, it, is, it will not solve this winter, will not solve next winter, but there are more winters to come. And then the Europeans need to get more independent of, of, you know, need to have more resources of gas. And we have been talking to uh, several European missions here in Canada to see, you know, that we are right in our uh, view of that they need it. And they confirm this. They are in dire needs for new supplies. And uh, uh, there are more and more LNG terminals being built quickly in around the North Sea to supply Europe, okay. with, which have access to the sea, but also okay. more inland. Okay, Mr. Tennyson, I have to leave it there. I'm out of time. Thank you very much uh, for joining us this evening. I appreciate it. Uh, Byer, Thank uh, you. Bjorn rather, Inga Tennyson is uh, Quest Air Energy's Board of Directors Chair. Thank you, sir. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. On the other end of that break, we're talking health care, the premiers and the prime minister with three former premiers, Kathleen Wynne, Christy Clark, and Daryl Dexter will be with me next. Stay right there. Well, we just want sustainability and certainty like, like any government. And so does the federal government. They understand that. And uh, so do the, the first ministers across the country. But again, our goal is to work collaboratively uh, with, with the federal government, along with all the other uh, the territories and the provinces. And we'll, we'll, we'll get it done. We serve the same people for the same purposes and the same dollars. So we were very pleased and, and proud to be sitting with Minister Jones and Premier Ford this morning to have this initial conversation to make sure we work together to serve Ontarians in the near future. Positive signs, as you heard there, emerging from a meeting between uh, the federal health minister, Jean-Yves Duclos, and intergovernmental affairs minister, Dominic LeBlanc, and Ontario's premier, Doug Ford. They were discussing the deal that the prime minister tabled just a few days ago on health care funding. It sounds, by what we just heard there, like uh, Ontario is pretty close to signing on the dotted line. Alberta's premier, Danielle Smith, said the same thing, something very similar uh, just a few minutes ago as well. She said she's not leaving any money on the table. She would have liked to see more, but she is prepared to take what is being offered. Let's bring in the front bench to talk a little bit about how all of this unfolded and where it goes from here. With me this evening, 
former BC Premier Christy Clark, former Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne, and former Nova Scotia Premier Daryl Dexter. Hi, everybody. It's good to see you this evening. I feel like we've been talking about the prospect of this for a month, so now we actually have the, the tangible details to, uh, to unpack for everybody. Uh, Christy, I wanted to start with you. It, it does sound like most premiers are, are willing to uh, sign on the dotted line sooner rather than later, but were you surprised at all at the way this ended up going down and the, and the sum of money that ended up being on the table for them? No. No and no. So I think in terms of the sum of money, it's not, you know, it's not a huge addition. I mean, it's about 1% more per annum than it would have gone up anyway as a percent of the federal government spending. And that, you know, they don't have a lot of money to spend at the moment. They're, you know, Canada is a heavily indebted country. We're predicting slow growth. So they probably were wise to, to kind of, for their own financial reasons, to keep that down. I do think, though... Um, in terms of the um, whether or not the premiers, of course, they're going to accept it. The healthcare system is in urgent, urgent situation. Children are being turned away at pediatric care. People are dying in the hallways of hospitals, and no one can get a doctor or nurse to look after them because of the shortage. It's a mess. It needs money immediately, an urgent, um, an urgent infusion. But money is not going to solve the problem. They need to have the courage to have a real discussion about profound healthcare reform. Because if you think about this, Bashi, Paul Martin signed a very similar deal. It was richer in 2004. It was supposed to fix healthcare for a generation. All it led to was more money, more money, more money, and more of the same problems. You can't keep fixing the same problem with just money anymore. I think we've proven that. Do, do you think, uh, Kathleen, do, first of all, do you agree with that assessment? And second, I mean, I do, I can think of many premiers I interviewed this week who said very similar things, right? Who don't want to, obviously will not leave the money on the table, as Danielle Smith said just a few minutes ago but also kind of acknowledge the fact that like something else has to go on besides just injecting more money into the system as it exists. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I agree with a lot of what Christy has said. Um, it is an urgent imperative for the premiers to get these deals, these bilateral deals. It's also urgent for the federal government um, politically, uh, not just in terms of system change, to uh, to get uh, to get agreements with the provinces and to drive change. And uh, you know, I think that I think that there was change that came about because of the the deal with Paul Martin. But there's more change that needs to happen now. I think that's what the shared priorities are about. It's also what the accountability measures are about. And um, you know, I think we'll be in a much better position if, in fact those um, accountability measures and those metrics are actually implemented across the country, we'll have a much better picture of what actually is happening because I don't think, I don't think anybody can say exactly what's happening in every province across the country and we certainly don't have comparators. So I think although the, the premiers I know are disappointed at the amount of money, um, I think that there, you know, there is an opportunity that the federal government's driving in terms of those reforms. And by reforms, and I have to say this, I say it every week, I do not mean for-profit incursion into the system, you know, and that's one of the things that I really worry about was not clear enough in the, uh, in the agreement. 
Yeah, there, there's just a line about the Canada Health Act One in, line. in, in, in this One proposal line. that the Prime Minister put forward. Yeah, um, I, I just I just want to pick up on, on something Kathleen mentioned, Daryl, and that is around. I know that there's um, you know everyone has signed on to this idea of greater data sharing, but what I found interesting in the reaction from various premiers was, uh, for example, in Quebec, Francois Legault was like, "Oh, there's no strings, there's no conditions. This is great." And then the federal government's message was was kind of counter to that, right? Like we're in the bilateral agreements, we, we're trying to make sure certain outcomes are achieved, like. Did you find this overly prescriptive, or do you agree with Legault's assessment? Which is it? Well, I think I mean I think first of all, um, framing this as a negotiation is kind of uh, not really the right, uh, right way to look at it. it I mean, after Point all, taken, the, the yeah, federal, yeah, the, the federal government has full control over its own budget, so it, it will decide ultimately what's going to be in those packages, and of course, the provinces are going to. Uh, accept those, um, uh, mainly because they are more money. And in terms of the side deals, well, of course, the federal government is going to want to, um, you know, achieve uh, certain reforms. They're going to want to achieve um, certain accountability measures. I, I don't, I don't find that particularly bothersome. I don't think it's overly prescriptive. Um, you know, we, we should say here, though, I think that, you know, uh, We've been collecting data on the Canadian health system for a very long time. The Canadian Institute for Health Information, of course, has been collecting it for more than, I think, almost 30 years now. Uh, we certainly relied on that data when, when we were making decisions in Nova Scotia. Um, uh, uh, is it all that it could be? No, of course it's not. And part of that is because we now ask the healthcare system to do so much more now than we ever did before. Every year we, we push more and more services into the healthcare envelope. So of course that envelope continues to get larger. And of course, along with that comes the need for us to be able to uh, collect more data. There are certainly outdated systems across the country that need to be updated. Uh, you know, I agree, I agree fully with that. I think we need to see greater uh, investment in that. And I think we're also going to see much greater investment in um, in digital health and uh, you know more electronic records, and that in and of itself allows you to better collect data. So, as we all agree, I think we we all uh, chaired the council at one point in time in our careers, and you know we know uh, that um, the the, the 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 council comes together to try and uh, frame the things that it wants to achieve. I think they've done a good job of that. I think the response of the of the federal government has been uh, has been predictable. Um, I think they will maybe try to top up the funding just a little bit to uh, to um, you know make things uh, a little a little more palatable. But I think it is what it is. You know, Vashi, can if I just is Canada has yeah, one of the yeah, most really expensive healthcare systems in the Go world. Ahead. One of the most expensive health, in fact, the most by if you if you measure by GDP, we have some of the worst health outcomes in the world for all that money. We've been trying to solve the problem with money for all of these years, and it's I think a sad thing that in this time of crisis, hardly any politicians, except maybe Doug Ford, are really talking about profound healthcare reform because money is not going to solve this problem anymore. I'll only just quickly add, having interviewed a bunch of them this week, I, they all, they did say the same thing. A lot of them said money won't solve the problem, including Andrew, I think it was Andrew Fury, as well as Premier Higgs in New Brunswick. So I'll, I'll just and quickly what is he add proposing, that caveat, but I, right? I do take everyone's point. 
Yeah. No, no. I mean, that's the follow-up question. It certainly was. Uh, I got to take a quick break, though. The front branch is sticking around. We're actually going to talk about Canada's relationship with China in light of that spy balloon and the new information the Pentagon is releasing on it. We're back in a moment right here on Power Play from the West Block this evening. Either this is no big deal in the military's eyes, and I don't think you're going to say that, um, or there's not a consistent plan on how to deal with them. It defies belief that there was not a single opportunity to safely shoot down this spy balloon prior to the coast of South Carolina. I would tell you, one of the things I think that's very different from our country, than, and you can look at historical examples, is we think before we shoot. And in this case, we thought before we shot. Pentagon officials testifying there before a Senate committee on Capitol Hill in D.C. over the decision and really the timing of the decision to shoot down that Chinese spy balloon last weekend over the Carolinas. You can hear there's a ton of political back and forth there, but it has also raised wider questions about uh, the relationship Canada and the U.S. have with China and what that relationship looks like going forward. Let's bring back the front bench to weigh in on, on what that relationship might look like. Former B.C. Premier Christy Clark, former Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne, and former Nova Scotia Premier Daryl Dexter. Kathleen, I'll start with you oh. because uh, I heard Joe Biden reference this in the, the U.S. president in the State of the Union address in which he said, yes, there are some areas to cooperate with on China, but we're going to protect ourselves against them as well in reference to the shooting down of this balloon. Uh, how difficult is walking, I mean, even th thinking of Canada, like how difficult is walking that line between, you know, still wanting some market access there, areas of cooperation, but at the same time confronting the national security reality we are? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's enormously problematic, Vashi. And I was thinking about if I were in the Premier's chair at this point, the conversation I'd be having with my economic development minister and how we would navigate, um, you know, the federal response. And we always took our lead from the, the federal government in terms of those relationships. But, but the reality of our intertwined supply chain and the economic um, relationship makes it extremely, extremely difficult. So I think we're in we're in a little bit of uncharted wa uncharted waters. I mean, we knew that there was tension, obviously, before this balloon, but I think this has heightened the concern and made it even more important that we, you know, that we have a conversation. I think the prime minister is going to need to have a conversation with all of the premiers, and I know the healthcare has taken that that space right now, but this is a conversation that's going to have to happen because the whole Team Canada approach in terms of you know, reaching out to China, which certainly um, when Christy and Daryl and I were premiers, that that has to be looked at. I'm not saying it has to be rethought. I'm just saying it has to be looked at in this context. I would imagine that it, it, it also, uh, I'd, I'd sort of wager to say, Daryl, does have to be rethought only, only because of even the specifics that happened. I mean, this balloon came over Canada, but prior to that, I mean, two of our citizens were essentially held hostage in China. So, the, the posture Canada takes towards China, um, you know, it, 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 there is an Indo-Pacific strategy. It's obviously being rethought, but I guess it just seems incredibly challenging. I'm not sure what your thoughts are. Yeah, well, I, read, I led the Council of the Federation uh, uh, mission to China back in 2012, and I remember very well 
uh, all of the security briefings that went on uh, at that time. Uh, and this was, I think, in a, in a, at a time when um, a lot of the um, relationship building was on a much more uh, friendly basis. But, uh, you know, the you know, the federal security people would tell you um, that, uh, you know, the, Chinese, the, the, the Chinese state actors are uh, absolutely invested um, in uh, surveillance. Um, you know, we were given our uh, phones that we used only in China and then were destroyed when we brought them back. Like, you know, there was just, just on a personal level, let alone on a kind of systems uh, basis. So, the relationship between Canada and China has always been what I would term a managed relationship. And uh, as these tensions continue to, to grow, as we've seen China become more and more aggressive in many, many ways uh, uh, around, uh, around the world, whether it's in its relationship with Taiwan or the, the manner in which it has aggressively used its kind of state-sponsored entities to make economic inroads into various parts of the world, um, uh, I think it's not just Canada. I think the West just kind of generally is starting to rethink its relationship with China. I think even primarily the United States, I, I would argue, Christy, I mean, its posture has certainly evolved over the last five years, and, and it now very readily classifies China as an adversary. I mean, you could hear parts of that in the speech that, that Joe Biden gave the other night. Do you think we kind of end up taking our lead from them on this? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Canada and the United States have a, the, the longest, healthiest, um, not without its problems, but relationship between two countries anywhere in the world. Longest undefended border anywhere in the world. Very, very important that we work together with the Americans on all these issues. We are What we're seeing, though, is, you know, China has, as you pointed out, Vashi, held two Canadians hostage. Um, and, you know, the, our relationship ha has been at a very low ebb for a long time. But we're also starting to see... Uh, President Xi become a lot more aggressive in the way that he talks about the West in general. We're seeing a, that alliance between Russia and China um, really uh, strengthen. And meanwhile, other Western countries are really trying to find ways to come together. So I think we're starting to see the global economy uh, kind of bifurcating in a different direction than it was before. And that is going to be difficult for Canada because we have done a lot of very productive trade. We've created a lot of jobs in Canada by our work on those trade relationships uh, across the ocean. And kind of un unweaving all that is going to have economic impacts for Canada. But we don't really have a choice. We have to, I think, you know, we, we have to work with the U.S. and our Western allies we have to make sure that we're supporting Ukraine against Russia, and we have to make sure that we are ensuring that Chinese incursions in North America and I think floating international law are are attended to by our politicians. It's going to be a little bit tough, and it's not going to be an easy road ahead for us in that, but it's going to be necessary work for Canada to maintain our standing on the world stage, I think, and also our moral integrity as a country. Uh, Christie's point about President Xi, uh, Kathleen, is an interesting one because what also was, I, I don't know, just con a little bit confounding was the timing of all of this, given that the Secretary of State in the U.S. was going to Beijing. Like there were some diplomatic efforts underway to find at least some areas of cooperation. So to do this now, 
Um, I was asking Ward Elcock, the former head of CSIS, a bit earlier on the program, like, was it a mistake by China? Because it, se- it seems a bit of a, a of a forced error. I don't know your thoughts. Well, my my understanding is that um, that it's happened a number of times, but has gone undetected, right? So um, maybe it was a mistake. Who knows? I you know <laughs> that's way above my pay grade, Vashi. But um, but I, I just think to Christie's point. We have no choice. And for all those geopolitical reasons that she laid out, in addition to the economic, the economic um, entanglement, you know, we have no choice but to find a way to work this out and to work with the United States on that. And as a, as a provincial leader, to then take our lead from the, the federal government. But it's, it's extremely worrisome. And it's, you know, I think it's the the, big, uh, the biggest political geopol- geopolitical problem that we have to deal with right now as the West. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you get the sense, though, Daryl, and, and Christy, I'll, I'll go to you right after, that the West is increasingly unified on this, though, and that maybe even the experience of Russia and Ukraine has amplified a bit of that unity? Yeah, Darryl, I, do think I do think there's a large degree of unanimity on this. And, and you only have to look back to... The, the, all of the questions around Huawei and whether or not you would have a Chinese communications right. company p- supplying the the backbone of communications in your country. And that was something that this federal government struggled with. And of course, other countries were already making the decision time, yeah. not not to go with Huawei. So, uh, you know, this, this as I say, the, the, when it comes to surveillance, China is... Uh, invest a considerable amount of capital in making sure that it has an advanced uh, surveillance system uh, on the West. Right. Mm-hmm. Christy, I just have 30 seconds left. Unfortunately, my apologies. We're hitting the end of the show here, but last word to you. Well, the war in Ukraine has really clarified things for everybody around the world. I think this is an opportunity for Canada to do more work with countries that are like-minded, that care about democracy, that care about human rights, and we can work together to strengthen each other's economies through trade. You know, it's, um, it's a big world out there, but it's nice to be working with people who share the same values that we do. Okay, on that, that's a perfect note to end things on. Thanks very much, all three of you, for the discussion this evening. Appreciate it. Christy Clark, Daryl Dexter, and Kathleen Wynne. Today's takeaway is about the earthquake and its destruction in Turkey and Syria. More than 20,000 people have now passed away because of that earthquake. Here's International Development Minister Harjit Sajjan on how fast Canada can get some help out to the area. So in anticipation, we're already preparing. Once the assessment is done, we'll have more information, but the, the assessment can come in days, and our decision to provide more support for can also come in days and uh, definitely uh, less than a week. Minister Sajjan says the assessment team that has gone out to the area to figure out where Canada can help could deliver their information back to the federal government in days, as you heard there, and a decision on what help will actually be going to the area could come very soon. Canada has been criticized because two dozen countries have sent search and rescue crews already to the area. Canada has not. The minister did indicate that those crews, to his understanding, were not internationally certified yet. That does it for us on Power Play from the West Block. I'll hand things over to my colleagues at News Channel. Have a great evening.